David was called a man after God's own heart even when he was a boy. And then, of course, he was uh, anointed and promised and that he would become king and filled with the Holy Spirit. And then uh, going on a mission of mercy to visit his brothers in the army, he finds himself fighting Goliath the giant and uh, wins that battle and then is thrust into national prominence, thinking, well, God's promised me I'm going to be king. What's taking so long? And then he spends over the next decade uh, waiting and being seasoned and uh, tested and toughened and uh, trusting the Lord. And then suddenly in a decisive battle, uh, King Saul is uh, mortally wounded and uh, falls on his own sword. Three of his four sons are killed, and David is recognized uh, by everyone as the heir apparent. What do you do first? That's kind of what we're looking at today. If when you have the opportunity in your life, you and I have a lot of have-to-dos and to-dos and things we do for other people, but when you have the opportunity, what do you do first? David inquired of the Lord. He put it as his top priority. And so if you look at his first steps, they were God-directed. And in 2 Samuel 2, it says, after this, that is, after the death of King Saul, after the years of running with the threat on his life, it's gone now. After that, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. And David said, well, where should I go? And he said, well, go to Hebron. Hebron was one of the cities that had been around for a long, long time. It was there a thousand years before David when uh, Abraham came into the land. And it happened to be near, uh, near the city of Hebron was a cave And uh, when Abraham's wife Sarah died, he bought that cave and he buried her there. Then he was buried next to her. Then Isaac and Rebekah, his son, and his wife were buried in the cave. And then his grandson Jacob and his wife Leah were buried there. So there are six patriarchs in what's called the Cave of the Patriarchs right there near Hebron. Then 500 years after Abraham, when the land was conquered and divided by Joshua, uh, Hebron was uh, considered one of the six cities of refuge. It's in the Judean mountains. So David inquired of the Lord. And then when he heard the answer, he obeyed. He did what God told him to do. So it says in verse 2, So David went up from there and his two wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him. Remember, he had 400. At one point, it says it grew to 600 men and their families and everyone with his household. And they lived in the town of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. All the elders of Israel came from all over and made David the king. Now, one of King Saul's sons, Ishbal, is still alive, and he's trying to grab the throne, and this went on for seven years. So there's this instability. So David is in Hebron as uh, the king. But uh, in 1 Chronicles 11, it tells the same story, gives us a few more details. So if you want to flip over to 1 Chronicles 11, here's what it says. Then all Israel gathered together to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, even when Saul was king, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord your God said to you, You will be shepherd of my people Israel, and you will be prince over my people Israel. So all the elders of Israel Israel came to the king at Hebron, and David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel according to the word of the Lord by Samuel. Shortly after this, David now has been recognized, he's been anointed as the king 
It's finally come to fruition. But shortly after this, David took his men, and they, <clears throat> there was this one city that was kind of in the middle of things named Jebus. When Je- um, Joshua was conquering the land, they were told to conquer everything, but they didn't finish their homework. And so they had left some cities untouched. And this was one of those that now for 500 years had been a thorn in their side. David goes up with his men and they stand and look up at the big wall in in Jebus and the people on the top said, you'll never get in here. The blind and the lame could keep you out. And uh, so David makes uh, uh, puts a challenge in front of his men. He said, whoever could get up there first will become the general of the army. And Joab did it. They went in through the water tunnel and, and got up into the city and uh, were able to open the gates. So God was with David. And uh, it says after that, he got into the city. And then verse 9, David became greater and greater for the Lord of hosts was with him. Da- God was with David. And David would inquire of the Lord, and then he would obey what God told him. And during this period of his life, David was humble and brave. He was patient and bold. He was intentional. And he's king over Judah for seven years in Hebron. Two more times, just so we don't miss it, in the Bible it says, David inquired of the Lord. David inquired of the Lord. Do you know that's a a discipline that is worth doing every day? of inquiring of the Lord, of talking to the Lord, of asking uh, him what he would want in your life, of listening to his voice, and then doing what he tells you. Compare that to David's predecessor, King Saul. Saul was given specific tasks. Some of them were hard. Some of them were unpleasant, and he ducked. And then when he saw the prophet Samuel, he lied. He said, I've been doing God's work. Except Samuel had listened to God the night before, and God had said, Saul is not doing what I told him to do, and I'm going to replace him with somebody else. And in 1 Samuel 15, Samuel the prophet says to King Saul, has the Lord as as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. So here's what he's saying. If you're living in sin and you know it, maybe it's a secret sin. Nobody else knows, but you know, and you know that God knows. If you're living in sin and you've heard the voice of God speak to you about it and you've ignored that, well, don't try to buy God with a generous offering because God isn't impressed. God takes delight in obedience of his children. So we don't, we don't buy his favor when we're not doing the right thing. David, at the beginning of his reign, inquired of the Lord, inquired of the Lord, inquired of the Lord, and then he did what God told him to do. He put God first. He asked God's advice, and he followed in obedience. James 1, 5 and 6 says, if anybody lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. Well, 2 Samuel 5, starting verse 10 says, David became greater and greater, for the Lord of hosts was with him. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David, and cedar trees, and carpenters, and masons came and built David a house in Jerusalem. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron, and he had more sons and daughters born to him. So what you see here is this David's first steps were God-directed. But David has this character flaw, 
And in his family, he never seemed to get it. In fact, he was self-directed. If David had lived by godly priorities, he would have put, which they were the same then as they are now, have God first in your life and your, your spouse and your, your family second, and then your work or your career third. But David blew right through this one. He, you know, he had had a first wife. Do you remember last week? Her name was Michael, and she was the daughter of King Saul. She was the second daughter, and it actually says in the Bible she loved him. It's the only place in the Bible where it says a woman loved somebody other than the Song of Solomon. And it's sad, but it never says David loved her back. And when it was suggested to David to, that he might marry the king's daughter, which was one of the prizes for having killed uh, Goliath the giant, David says, quote, Does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law? I'm a poor man. I have no reputation. So David was humble, and he realized, God is exalting me, but I don't ever deserve to marry the daughter of the king, a princess. But when this idea was first suggested to Michael, I mean, she's a princess, and he's poor, but he has just killed a giant. She's hopeful, and he is humble. She loves him. She protects him. She even lied against uh, to her own father to help him escape. She protested on his behalf. She lowered him out of the house, out the window. She helped him escape, and he never looked back. In revenge, King Saul took Michael and gave her to another man to marry. David goes on out, and uh, he has, ends up collecting other wives from other places. If you looked in 1 Samuel 25, David and his 400 to 600 malcontents who've come out there, it says that they were people running from the king, running from the law, people who hadn't paid their taxes, people who had done heinous things, and that became the band that gathered around him in the wilderness. Well, you can only sit out there and play cards for so long without getting that many guys getting into trouble. So he turned them kind of into the CHP mafia, kind of, kind of a, a mix between those two. He would send them out on patrols to, to patrol for the uh, the upstanding citizens of the community, and then they would go by to collect their fee. And in First Samuel 25, they go by to collect from a rich man named Nabal, and Nabal spurned them. Well, then when they brought that report back to David, it, he flashed angry, and he was so mad that he himself personally took some of his men, and he was headed to Nabal's house to murder every uh, uh, male in the house. And uh, in the meantime, Nabal's wife, who hadn't been around when this happened, arrived. She hears about it. Her name is Abigail. And so she did some quick thinking, and she loaded some donkeys with some food. I don't know if you could do this from your house. We could not. But she loaded 200 loaves of bread a donkey full of wine, five sheep that were already cooked, a hundred clusters of raisins, and 200 fig pies for dessert. And she loads all these on donkeys and she starts heading towards David. And she runs into him and his men in the pass. She slips off her donkey and she gets down on her knees before him, bows to the ground, and she says, I'm so sorry how you were treated at my house. Please forgive my husband. He was a fool. And David says, you're right. I was actually coming to murder him and everybody else in the house. But you have saved me from doing what was wrong. Seven days later, Nabal, her husband, had a heart attack and died. And so David, when he heard the news, well, he sent for her, sent somebody, said, go get her and have her come be become my wife. I mean, he was a hopeless romantic, you know, in his approach. And um, so anyway, she did. 
But then there's a curious verse in 1 Samuel 25, 43. It says, David also, at the same time, took Ahinoam of Jezreel and Ahinoam and Abigail. Both of them became his wives. Saul had given Michael, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish. Now, Ahinoam is not that common of a name, even in the Bible. I didn't go to school with any Ahinoam, did you? And uh, in the Bible, there's only one other than in this mentioned right here. And it's in 1 Samuel 14. It says the name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahimaaz. Now, we know that Saul had other wives and other concubines, and we don't know what happened between Saul and this wife. Somehow, she became David's wife. I don't know whether he did it just to make a point. Maybe she was even Michael's mother. We don't know enough of the details. But David has Ahinoam and the Abigail, the widow of Nabal, as his wives. And I don't know if that's when Michael learned the news that she had been replaced, but her heart must have been broken. David, however, wasn't done collecting trophy wives. 2 Samuel 3 records that he, while he's king in Hebron, he has six sons born from six different women. And when he moves to Jerusalem, he added some more. So it really doesn't seem to make sense. He seems to be moving forward in the flesh, doesn't it? That in 2 Samuel 5, 12, it says, God exalted him as king over the whole nation. And so in response, David took more wives and concubines. I mean, clearly God was not included in David's thoughts about this. David hadn't talked to the Lord about his relationships and the relationships in his life because God cares very much about relationships between people. Remember, marriage was God's idea, God's plan from the earliest scriptures. It's in the second chapter in the Bible, Genesis 2. It says the Lord is looking at what he's made. He says, that's good, that's good, that's good. Then he saw the man. He said, that's not good that he should be alone. I'll make a helper for him. And he made him fall into a deep sleep and took a man's rib and created a woman and brought him, her to the man. The man said, wow, that is great. And And then it says, therefore, a man will leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they will become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. God's design is not just a physical mingling. It's a spiritual union. It's an emotional joining, two becoming one, emotionally, physically, spiritually. You know, that's impossible to do if you try to have six or 12 or 20 wives like David did. It doesn't work. So this area of David's life appears to have not been surrendered to the control of the Holy Spirit that had rushed upon him and was guiding his life. And it got him into all kinds of trouble and all kinds of grief. But that's coming later. David had just become king. And he has been inspired by the Lord. He has followed God in obedience in a lot of his life. He's captured the whole city of Jebus, renamed it Jerusalem, the city of David. He made it the capital of the whole nation. But in a godly way, he wanted more. It's good. What do you do when you're first in charge? When you're finally in charge, what do you do first? And this became a defining moment, a God-directed moment in David's life. He did something that has lasting impact to this day. He had this desire that Jerusalem would not just be the capital of the country, but it would be the spiritual headquarters of the nation. If you look back in review, and God was for it. So if we look back in review, the children of Israel were slaves in Egypt. 
1500 BC approximately, God sent Moses to deliver the people, and he used miracles to do it. He got them out of Egypt, got them headed toward the promised land. They're out in the wilderness. They stop at Mount Sinai, and Moses goes up at the top, and God gives, starts to give gifts. He gives them the law. He gives them guidance on feasts. He gives them blueprints for how to build a tabernacle, a portable church. He tells them how to go about giving contributions. He gives them directions to build a table for bread and golden lampstands and a bronze altar and he gives directions on the special priest's garments and how to consecrate the priests and he gives them the Ten Commandments and he gives them directions how to build an Ark of the Covenant and you go, what's the point? The point is God wanted to be in the midst of his people and he had a plan. It shows up in almost every book in the Bible. Exodus 6-7, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. Leviticus 26, 12, I will walk among you, I will be your God, and you will be my people. First Chronicles 17, you made your people Israel to be your people forever, and you, O Lord, became their God. Psalm 95, 7, he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. Jeremiah 30, 22, you shall be my people, I will be your God. You will be my people, I will be your God. Shows up in Joel 2, you shall know that I'm in the midst of Israel, that I am the Lord your God. There's none else. It goes all the way through to Revelation chapter 5. They sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. What's the point? God wants to be your God. And he wants you to be his people. And it means it's going to cost something. And it did. And God joyfully paid it all. It cost the life of his son. But he loves you so much it didn't matter what he had to pay to reach out to you because he wants to be your God. He doesn't want anything else being your God. Not another person, not another goal, not your wealth, not your job, not your position, not your status. He wants to be number one in your life. That's still his passionate desire. And he was willing to pay whatever. You know, last night, um, Cindy this week is up seeing our new granddaughter in Oregon. And so I've been batching it. And um, <laughs> she calls last night at 9.30. And she says, she says, you know, I'm coming home tomorrow. I said, I know, I can hardly wait. And she said, I'd like to bring our four-year-old grandson with me. And what do you think? I said, that's a fine idea. She said, I called the airline and the plane is full. Can you figure it out for us? <laughs> I said, but of course. <laughs> Why didn't you ask this on Monday or Tuesday? or Wednesday? I didn't say that. I just said, good, I, good plan. And when the kid gets here, I'm not going to say to him, do you realize what you cost me? Scheduling your flight that late? No, I'm not going to say that. I'm going to say, so good to see you because I love you and I want to be with you. And that's exactly what God did. So he had him put all these things together so that he would have a tabernacle, he would have a home right in the middle of his people. And a visual reminder was this box called the Ark of the Covenant. It was two and a half feet by three and a half feet and about two feet, two and a half feet deep. And it's covered with gold. And there's a ring on each corner because God lived in the box, you see. At least that's what they thought. And you could die if you touched it. And 
And so they would slide a pole through the rings and only consecrated priests would pick this box up and would move it certain places and you had to keep a certain distance from it further than we have to keep when we go out whale watching. And just to show the respect that God is passing through our midst. So David says, I'm going to go get the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle. I'm going to bring them here to Jerusalem. We're going to start to worship God in a new place in, an, in, in, in the way that it would please him. So he's well-intended. He takes 30,000 soldiers and a cart to go get the Ark. Do you know why he needed 30,000 soldiers? It only took four people to carry the thing. Do you know why he needed 30,000? To say, this is a big deal. It's a big deal. We're moving where we've worshipped for years. You know why he needed a cart? Because he hadn't read God's word. And he didn't know the right way to do it. But he's well-intended, and he hasn't consulted the Lord. He hasn't consulted God's word. He just knew how they had done it before. If you look back in the, in the text, I mean, there's this history of ignorance. And instead of asking, how have we always done it? A better question is, what does God desire? What does God desire? In 1 Samuel 4, there's a story that this is before they had a king. They went out to fight against their arch enemy, the Philistines. And they lost. They lost 4,000 men that day. And they come limping back to camp and they go to their leaders and they say, oh my goodness, why did the Lord defeat us today? We lost. Tell you what let's do. Somebody came up with the idea. Let's go get that Ark of the Covenant. God's in the box. Let's bring him out here and put him right in the front of the fight. We'll never lose then. And so it says in 1 Samuel 4, verse 4, so the people sent to Shiloh, which is where the Ark was, and they brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who's enthroned on the cherubim, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, which I'll break into the story here, were evil men who worked at the church. They didn't know the Lord. The text says that. And Eli, their father, had not given his adult sons warning or guidance or correction. He just let them do their thing. God judged all three men on this particular day. So Eli sons, Hophni and Phinehas, bring the Ark of the Covenant of God and they bring it out to the fight. And as soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. But if you read it, when you go out the next day, they lost horribly the next day. The first day they lost 4,000 soldiers. The next day they lost 30,000 soldiers. And Hophni and Phinehas were killed, and the Ark of the Covenant was captured by the Philistines and taken to the temple of their god, Dagon. Well, when Eli, back at home, heard this, he fell backwards off of his chair in a fit, and he broke his neck, and he died. His daughter-in-law was expecting a baby that day, and she died in childbirth, but the baby lived, and they named the baby Ichabod, which means the glory has departed. How low can we go? That sin was practiced right in God's house and God is taken out to the fight and we lost him. 
So the Philistines take the ark. They had five cities. They take it to their first city of Ashdod, and they put their ark in the house of Dagon so that Dagon can admire the new conquest. And hey, look what we found. Well, the next day they go in, and Dagon, who's made out of stone, has fallen down, and he's bowing like to the, to the ark of the covenant. They go, oops, that's not right. And they stand him back up, and the next day they come in, and he's fallen down, and his hands and his head have all broken off and are rolled around there on the floor. And they go, what's going on? And then, I mean, don't think God doesn't have a sense of humor. He, he does. And then all the people of Ashdod, um, where the ark is being kept captive, were afflicted with terror in their hearts and tumors in their private parts. Everybody. It's really bad. And they don't know what to do. And they're just so terrorized. They finally say, tell you what, they connected it to the, the Israelite God in the box. So you know what they decided? I don't know where their logic came from. They said, this has been so bad for us. Let's send it to our sister city, Gath, where Goliath came from. And guess what happened when the Ark of the Covenant got to Gath? The very same thing. Tumors and terror. So they said, let's send it to Ekron, the third Philistine city. Well, Ekron had heard what had happened in the first two. They see it coming. They go, nothing doing. It's not coming in here. We are not letting that in here. It took them seven months to figure out, you mess with God, you lose. And it hurts. And it's killing us. So somebody came up with a plan. Tell you what, let's do. They didn't have God in their hearts. They didn't have God's word. They didn't have any guidance. Here's the plan they came up with. Let's take two cows that have nursing calves. Let's hook them to a cart. Let's take that thing and let's put it on the cart. Let's put a guilt offering next to it. So they made five golden tumors and five golden mice. And they put those on the cart. And they said, now let's see what happens. Guess what happened? With nobody leading it, those two cows left their own calves and they began to walk right towards Israel. And when, I mean, they watched. God took the cart with the Ark of the Covenant on it and it brought it back to Israel. And so when David comes along now, years later, because when the Israelites got the cart, of course, they used the cart to make us, uh, uh, they made an altar. They used the cart as the wood to to burn the the uh, the cows as a sacrifice. And they took the ark and they put it in somebody's house. And while they figured out what to do with it, and this guy's just blessed over and over and over. So David comes along and he says, "We gotta go get it." So in 2 Samuel 6, it says, David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord. They brought 30,000 soldiers. They brought the cart to put it on. They're singing, and they have songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God to took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and that place is called Para-Uzzah, in other words, Uzzah's judgment to this day. And then David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of the God come to me? So David wasn't willing to take it to the city of David, so they turned aside and they put it in somebody else's house. You know, doing God's will, God's way, is the right way to go. And you can bet that the second time around, David heard that the, it was being, the, the person who had it for three months was being blessed. So you can be sure that he went and studied, what is the right way to do this? Oh, you're supposed to have consecrated priests carry it. Oh, it's supposed to be accompanied with some kind of sacrifice. Oh, you're supposed to have gotten your heart right. 
So in 2 Samuel 6, verse 12, it says, when it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the house of, of Obed-Edom and all the, that belongs to him because of the ark of God sitting in his living room. So David went and brought the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. Six more steps sacrificed some more. Six more steps, did it again. David danced before the Lord with all his might, and he's wearing a linen ephod. I don't get this. A linen ephod was like a vest. It's not very long. It doesn't cover very much, and it's something that the priest was supposed to wear over his robe. Why that's all that David had to wear that day while he's dancing, I don't know, but he's wearing it. And David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. This is a big day. Everybody that he could possibly gather is there clapping and cheering and dancing and making music. And they bring the, the ark of the covenant into Jerusalem with sacrifice and with celebration. 30,000 soldiers, big crowds, music, celebration. God is among us. God's in our midst. We are his people. It's what God's always wanted. He wants to be our God. He wants us to be his people. They arrive in Jerusalem, and David's ecstatic. He's finally king. It's all working, and he is dancing and celebrating, maybe a little too much. You ever been in a situation where you're kind of uncomfortable because the leader wasn't very leaderly? I don't know. I don't want to push that too far, but, um, you know, uh, sometimes, you know, in that situation, you, you like what the leader accomplished, but you, you kind of cringe at, at how they went about it. Well, that's what's happening here, and this is really a sad part of the story because watching out the window is David's first wife, Michael. Remember, she was given to somebody else, and then when David had become king, he had demanded, she be not, has to be given back to me. And her, her new husband actually followed her for miles, crying behind her, trying to get to take her home until the general said, you either turn around and go back or I'm going to kill you right here on the spot. And she was taken like a prisoner into the palace now. Her dad's died. Her brothers have died. David has become powerful. Now he's the king. And she's there. And it says in verse 16, as the ark of the Lord came to the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window. She hears this commotion coming. She saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place, and inside the tent that David had pitched for him, David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when he had finished offering the burnt offerings and peace offerings. He blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. He distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, a cake of raisins to each one. I don't know if you ever calculated how much it really cost David to throw this party that day. It was expensive. And then all the people departed and each to his own house. And David returned to bless his household. He has had a big day. It's been a big celebration. He is ready to walk in the door and hear everybody say, Welcome home, Mr. Wonderful. It says, verse 20, David returned to bless his household. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, with sarcasm in her voice, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. Now, she was probably saying the right thing, and he probably needed some gentle correction, but how she went about it was wrong, wasn't it? 
And it's a sad turn of events because they've come so far. Because here she is, this princess. And at first she's wondering, will I ever find the suitable prince? And then out of the blue, the champion was available to her. And David started humble and feeling unworthy. And she loves him and protects him and defends him and cares for him and helped him escape. And he never came back. Or at least when he did, she had been replaced by six wives. And then her father died and Three of her brothers had died, and then her fourth brother died, and her family's in tatters, and she's been given to another man who really did love her and then forced to separate from him. And she and David have grown apart. And here he is out in the street humiliating his family. He's not wearing enough. He's exposing himself. He's embarrassing them all. And her words are sharp and sarcastic. And he's coming off one of the biggest wins of his life. And I think he's headed into a post-adrenaline stress disorder here. And he's ready to hear what a wonderful job he did. And when he gets the sharp criticism, he lets his pride get in the way. Listen to that in his voice. Verse 21, David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abused in your eyes. But by the female servants of this, of whom you have spoken, by them I'll be held in honor. Now, they crashed into each other that day. David now is in the position of power. He's the king, and he let her have it. And yet you could hear the hurt and the pride in his answer. I don't hear the Spirit of God speaking through him at that moment, even though what he said was the truth. And they never reconciled. Verse 23 says, And Michael had no child to the day of her death. See, I think David was doing the right thing, but he was doing it in the wrong way. He needed to give guidance to his family, but he spoke out of hurt and anger. Never discipline in anger. So if we were to review here, we say this was a defining moment. It was God-directed. So what do you do first when you're finally in charge? David had these desires to lift God up. And if we look at ourselves in adversity and in prosperity, just like David, everything in between, put God first. Choose a life that is God-directed. Ask God and then follow him in obedience. Put your priorities the way God wants them, of God first and family second and your work third. And if you have one, love the spouse God gave you. And then we see here, know God's word. Live by God's guidance. And when you set the agenda, put God first. Do God's work, God's way. Let's stand and pray together. Dear God, I thank you for the life of David. I thank you for what we can learn. I pray that we will learn some of these lessons and in our own lives, our own humble lives, we're nothing compared to David, but we will keep our eyes on you. You will be our God and we will be your people. Amen.